Father Yahweh, we come before you. We thank you so much for the blessings you give us, and we pray that what we do would be worthy of your calling, would be worthy of your, your grace. Father, we thank you, and we praise you, and we pray also for those on the prayer list that you would be with each one of those according to your will, and be with those hurting and, and uh, not well today. And we ask all this in Yahshua's beloved name. Hallelujah. We'd like to welcome you all here, and certainly a blessing to uh, have everybody, and I'd like to uh, extend a uh, welcome to those online. Or today, I want to talk about and ask, are we following a counterfeit Messiah? You know, the, the sad reality is, so much of what is believed with the Messiah is false. It's not right. It's not scripturally correct. Let me give you some examples. These are just a few. I mean, obviously there's more. Many believe that he was called by the name of Jesus. Many believe that he was born on December 25th. Many believe that he began a new faith apart from what we find in the Old Testament, that that which was given to Abraham. Many believe that he annulled the Old Testament commandments, the law, the Torah. Many believe that he died on a cross and rose on Easter Sunday. Well, the fact is, every one of these beliefs are false. Not one is true, not biblically true. Instead, they're based solely on man's tradition. You know, the church has deviated so far from the truth that really is hardly recognizable based on Scripture. You know, I had the opportunity to talk to quite a few people here at the ministry, and It's amazing how often that comes up, the difference between what the Bible says and what we find within the church. The two are nearly diametrically opposed to one another. There are many, many beliefs, but many are false. So today I want to rediscover the true Messiah, the real Messiah, the Messiah we find within the Bible. I want to begin with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. 3.2 says, A book of the generation of Yahshua Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas, or Judah, the, the Grecianized form of Judas, Judah there, Judas, and his brethren. So we see here at the beginning of Yahshua's genealogy. It shows here that he was from the line of Abraham. More specifically, we see here that he was of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and eventually Judah. He was from the line of Judah. Now realize that Judah is only one of the 12 tribes we find within Scripture. Now why is it important that we understand the genealogy of our Savior? You know, it's amazing. This was critically important for the Jews to understand where they were from, their genealogy. Why is it important that we understand this? Well, it's important because we need to realize that that our Savior was a Jew. And he was not a Greek or a Roman, as so many believe today. You know, it's amazing. You know, I think people, academically, they know that the one they worship is a Jew. But if you look at what they say about this man, where do you think he he was a a Greek or a Roman? Or what this means is that he would have identified with his Jewish culture. This also means that he would have worshipped in the manner of the Jews, including things like the Sabbath and the feast days. 
You know, as we'll see in this message, and we'll see this at the end, I'm to give some examples. This is precisely what he did. He worshipped as a Jew would have worshipped at this time. The fact is, again, what we see in Christianity does not reflect the Messiah, but instead a Greco-Roman faith absent, absent of much biblical truth. So it's important to realize that the Messiah was born from the line of Judah and also that he would have identified with the religion of the Jews. Now, when I say religion of the Jews, let me be very specific. I'm not referring to the Talmudic laws or the, the rabbinic tradition that we find, because we obviously know there was a lot of tradition. We can see that in Matthew 15 and Mark 7, Yahshua there chastises the Jews for their tradition. He says it was so bad that they obeyed Yahweh, they obeyed man, they obeyed their traditions more than they did Yahweh's word. So it's important to realize that Jew, the, the, the Jewish faith is really the faith that Yahweh gave to Abraham, not the Talmudic, rabbinic faith that we see at this time and, and continue to see in modern age. Now, being a Jew, we know that Yahshua would have had a Hebrew or Jewish name. We see that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. It says there, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Yahshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. So we see here the name of the Messiah is Yahshua. And it literally means Yahweh is salvation. And again, you know, for the Jews, names had meaning. And we see here that Yahshua brought salvation from or through his father. And that's why it's so important that we understand this distinction. You know, scripture says that Yahshua came in his father's name. From a theological perspective, that's very important to realize that he came in his father's name. Now, what about the traditional name of Jesus? Where, where did this come from? I want to read this is actually from the uh, upcoming fourth edition, which will probably still be a while, but this is from the uh, fourth edition. We've modified this commentary somewhat. But here's what it says. This is a Savior's name. In the Hebrew is Yahshua, composed of five Hebrew letters, yod he wal shen ayin and incorporating the designation Yah of the Father Yah, or Yahweh, and Shua, from a Hebrew word meaning salvation. Hence, it's meaning salvation of Yah. The name Jesus lacks any etymological connection, being a combination of several desperate elements. Jesus is Latinized Greek, employing the letter J, the newest letter in the English alphabet. And, you know, just as a side note, many people, they don't realize this. They don't realize that J is somewhat new. Certainly, we know that even if you go with the traditional name of the Messiah, he would have never heard that, because there is no J in Hebrew, not even today. So the J was non-existent in any language until the 14th century. The E may have resulted from either a deliberate or a natural shift from Yah to Yeh, although Yeh is common within the prefixes of Jewish names in the Masoretic manuscripts, and that's really 9th century uh, on. Akkadian cuneiform tablets, this Medic language, cognate to Hebrew dating to the Persian period, that's 5 to 6th century BCE, confirm the use of Yah and Yahu within the prefixes of several Jewish names. The Greek has no S-H sound and employs a simple S in rendering the Hebrew Sh or S-H of Yahshua. The U-S ending in the nominative masculine singular ending of the Greek. No, and this is really key here, this, this statement we make in the RSP. 
No scriptural authority allows changing the saving name Yahshua into a designation that lacks even a semblance of the original pronunciation and meaning. In other words, we don't have the authority to change or to modify the name of our Savior. You know, Scripture says that there is only one name whereby we find salvation. People ask, should I, matter of fact, I had a long discussion with a man yesterday. Should I be reimmersed into Yahshua's name? Absolutely, in my opinion. Absolutely. Because we know that Scripture says there's only one baptism, there's only one name for salvation. Anyway, it goes on here. We refer to the Companion Bible. It says Companion Bible notes Jesus is the same as a Hebrew Hoshea. And of course, Hoshea is the original name there. With Yah prefixed, or Jah prefixed, so we see Yahshua, even from the Companion Bible. We also see it in a few other places in addition to this. So we see here the process by which we believe, anyway, the traditional name of the Messiah rose, and that is the name of Jesus, not the name of the one we worship. You know, the fact is, the Messiah would have never heard this name in his lifetime. Matter of fact, nobody would have heard this name in their lifetime. We could go back 2,000 years ago and start shouting this name and nobody would turn around because this name would be completely foreign to the entire culture because the J had not existed at this point. You know, for those who watched The Passion of Christ, you might remember that this name or something very close to it was mentioned, Yahshua, or, or, you know, and again, it's very close, but they never used the traditional JC, never once. Now, we know that this movie was in Aramaic, and they used the Aramaic name, or as they understood it, and again, we heard Yahshua, or something very close to that. Now, we also heard a very, uh, very similar rendering, Yeshua, in another movie here recently, Risen. By the way, it's a great movie. I don't know if you've seen it. It's one of my favorite movies. It's not a, it's, it's one of those that's not biblical per se, but it's based on the Bible. It's a great, great movie though. But it uses Yahweh several times, several times throughout the movie and also the uh, closer to the Hebrew form of the Messiah. Now, why is it important that we understand and recognize the Hebrew name of the one we call Savior? Where in the Hebrew culture, again, names had meaning, they had purpose. Let me give you an example. Abraham, before he was called Abraham, he was called Abram. Abram was a name he was given. So he went from Abram to Abraham. Where in doing so, the meaning of his name went from exalted father to father of a multitude. And we know, as we even talked about in the Bible study today, that through the promise of Abraham really referred to the promise of the Messiah. Because we know that scripture says that all the families of the earth would be blessed through this man named Abraham, where Abraham was not a blessing to all the families, but his seed, that is the Messiah, would be a blessing to all the families of the earth through his sacrifice. So we see a name change, and we see with that name change, there was a, a meaning added to that name. So we see here the that, that, again, names have meaning with, within Hebrew. You know, when we understand this, it should give us reason to pause and consider the importance of our Savior and to realize that he does have a name. It's a Hebrew name with a very special message behind it. And that message, again, is Yahweh is salvation. It literally describes his purpose, the reasoning for his coming, and the goals that he achieved. Yahweh is salvation. And I can tell you this, it's important to, to our Savior. 
I know it's important to him, and for that reason, it should be important to us. Now, another difference between the traditional Messiah that we so often see and hear about in the church and what we find in Scripture is appearance. Now, the Bible doesn't exactly give us a depiction of what he looked like, but we know certain things to be true and certain things not to be true. For instance, we find a somewhat of a description in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 2 says this, For he shall grow up before him as a, ma- a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath, listen, he has no form nor comeliness. There's nothing great. There's nothing great about the way he looks. And when we shall see him, there's no beauty. There's no beauty that we should desire him. So what do we see in this passage? Or There was really nothing unique. There was nothing special about the way our Savior appeared. He looked like any other Jew of his day. So what did a Jew look like during the time of our Savior, Yahshua? For several years ago, popular mechanics developed an illustration based on archaeology and also based on what the Bible says. So here's what they came up with. Here's the depiction based on popular mechanics. Now, I want you to sort of look at this picture. Look at this image. Now, this certainly is not the image we normally see, is it? Have you ever seen this image on a cross or on the wall of a church? What we see here is a darker complexion. We see a beard. We see a curly hair, a sort of a round nose, and dark eyes. Now, how does this compare to the traditional view that we so often see? Well, there it is. So what we see here is a European man, not a Jew, not a Hebrew. You see that long, slender nose, that long, flowing hair. You know, Paul says it's a dishonor for a man to have long hair. Why in the world would our Savior have long hair? If Paul says it's a dishonor to have long hair. And again, he just, he looks European. He looks European. Straight, long, flowing hair, slender, straight nose. Nothing Jewish, nothing Hebraic. They really share nothing in common. Now, why is this important? Does it really matter what our Savior looked like? We understand that this is not the only aspect that is gone major, major overhaul. We see so many changes. But for me, the issue with this is it gives this impression that our Savior was a Greek or he was a Roman instead of Hebraic. This certainly does not look like a Hebraic man. This does not look like a Jew. And our Savior, he was a Jew with a Jewish faith, a Jewish heritage, Jewish beliefs. You know, in fact, in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, we find that as a boy he was even circumcised. It says here, and when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child. So we see here that he was circumcised. And as we know, it says here that it was on the eighth day. Now, just as a side note, and I don't know, you maybe have heard this before, but have you ever wondered why Scripture says to do this on the eighth day? Why not day one? Why not as soon as that little boy comes out, you circumcise that child? Why Why? the eighth day. Rena, I found this out many years ago, but it's still just amazing to me every time I think about it. 
What's remarkable is that medical science has now discovered that by the eighth day of life, vitamin K is developed within the body. And vitamin K is what helps us coagulate the blood. In other words, if you did it before the eighth day, there's a chance of a bleeding to death. Matter of fact, uh, state law in Missouri requires a vitamin K shot for a male or a female. But it's for this reason, because they circumcise typically the first day a male child. And if they do that without the shot, the blood does not coagulate, certainly as it should. You know, this example of circumcision on the eighth day shows me two things. Number one, the Bible, including the Old Testament, was inspired. There's so many. I'm going to talk about the, the Feast of Tabernacles about this. It always amazes me the science we find within the Bible. It makes sense. I mean, Yahweh's a creator, right? He understands this universe. He understands our bodies. He understands how things work. No wonder why we see all these scientific principles within the scripture. These bunch of nomads would have never known about vitamin K or the fact that the blood begins to coagulate by the eighth day. They would have never known this, but the Bible does. Number two, every command within the word has meaning and purpose. I believe that. Now, some of these commands are a little bit odd sometimes. I'll say, you know, what is that? I don't know. I don't know why he did that. I don't know why he said that, but I'm sure it has a meaning and purpose. I'm sure there was a reason why he gave that command. Now, was circumcision the only command that Yahshua and his parents followed? Well, of course not. We know that as a Jewish boy that he would have been raised in the Jewish faith. You know what's amazing, though, is that he never forsook his Hebraic background. After growing up, we find many, many examples. You know, people were, I was talking to a man, by the way, yesterday, and, and we were um, just discovered the ministry. So he's been studying for about four years. He says he was just blown away because as he was reading our stuff, he realized this is what I'm reading. He, he came and he says it has to be inspired because I came up with this all on my own without your help, but now he's learning more through the ministry. He's learning more. But Yahshua never forsook his Hebraic, his Hebraic heritage. Throughout his ministry, we, and we'll see examples later, he continued keeping the Sabbath. He continued keeping the feast days. He continued keeping many of the commandments we find within the word. You know, the fact is, it, it wasn't the Messiah or the apostles that changed worship as we find today within the church. It was man and what's remarkable about, uh, re- re- remarkable about that is that it's easy to prove. People call and they'll say, you know, what about Easter? What about, you know, Sunday? And, you know, just open up the encyclopedia. Read in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Go to the Judaica. It's not hard to prove these things. You know, as the illustration of his Hebraic faith, we find that he was given several Jewish titles throughout the New Testament. I want to just look at a few of these. John chapter 1. Verse 49, it says, Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi. Rabbi, by the way, is a Hebrew word in, the, in a New Testament, which tells me one of the indicators that the Old New Testament was probably Hebrew because we have all these Hebrew words within it. It says, Rabbi, thou art the son of Yahweh, thou art the king of Israel. And we find one more here in Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. By the way, just in case you haven't figured this out yet, here in Matthew 2, they were not worshiping the Messiah's birth. 
So many people open up, there it is, there's Christmas. Or they weren't there to worship his birth. They were there to worship the king of the Jews. See, Yahshua was already a boy. He was already, well, he was young, but he, he certainly was no infant. The term rabbi was an honor of position among the Jewish people. Normally it referred to someone in a teaching position. The titles King of, the, King of Israel and King of the Jews, I believe, are prophetic. And they show Yahshua's role in the coming millennium. It points to his second coming when he will return and reign and rule as king. You know, Isaiah speaks of this, Isaiah 11. says that he will rule with a rod of iron over all nations. We also see that, I think, in Micah chapter 4, where Yahweh's law will go out to all nations, of course. That is through the Messiah. Now, another important point is this. These are Jewish or Hebraic titles connecting Yahshua's ministry and future position to as a king and also to his Hebraic roots. Not only was Yahshua born as a Jew and worshipped as a Jew during his first coming, he will continue this pattern when he returns to establish his father's kingdom. You see, Yahweh's truth is Hebraic. And that is a truth that if more people understood, we would see a drastic change in worship. Because what we see today in the church is not Hebraic. It is not Jewish. What we see in the church is a deliberate move to more of a Roman, Grecianized faith. When we see in scripture something completely and utterly different. Now in John chapter 4 verse 22... Yahshua explains why this Jewish connection is so important. John chapter 5, verse 24, verse 22 says, Yahshua said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You shall worship, uh, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So Yahshua here, he's speaking to a woman of Samaria in the city of Sakar near Mount Gerizim. So he explains here that there was coming a day. There was coming a day when they would not worship there in Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, we know from the, I didn't read it, but we know there it says now is the day. He says now is the day. I believe when Yahshua spoke, he, 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 he confirmed that from that point on that they would worship throughout the world. We know that Paul worshipped. You know, he was in Philippi, for instance, in, in Acts 20, verse 6, and uh, he was in other places throughout the feast days. So they were worshipping in other places besides there in Jerusalem. We're in this passage. Again, he explains this. Now understand that we're seeing the fulfillment of this today and have been. You know, from the correspondence we receive here at this ministry, I know people are worshipping Yahweh throughout this world. Matter of fact, Alan, in the Bible study, mentioned China. I was uh, thinking about the different nations I've heard from, and, you know, obviously Africa's a big one, Kenya, Nigeria, and some places like that. Europe, you know, all throughout Europe, we, it's amazing the people we hear. Australia, I correspond with a man from Australia quite a bit. Uh, Israel, China, I think as Alan mentioned. The Caribbean, that's a, that's a fairly popular spot for believers. And I'm sure many other places we hear from people all throughout the world that are worshiping Yahweh, as Yahshua said they would, not only in Jerusalem, but also elsewhere, as they do today. 
Notice he said, notice uh, he did not say here salvation was from the Jews as if it was past, past and no longer applied. You know, as in other examples, I believe we find a dual meaning. We find a dual meaning here. Number one, this is a reference, I believe, to Yahshua being a Jew. You know, as we see in John chapter 3, verse 16, we know that all those who believe and follow our Savior will be saved. That's what Scripture says. So I think when Yahshua says salvation is from the Jews, in part, he's referring to himself. Because he was a Jew, and he understood that salvation was, was from him through what he would do. But number two, I believe that this is a reference to the Jewish or the Hebraic promise. You see, Yahweh's word, again, is Hebraic. It's Hebraic. It's not Greco-Roman, as we see so often. It's Hebraic. Paul in Galatians 3 confirms that all those who are baptized into Yahshua's name, he says that we are one of Messiah, but then he goes on to say that we are also heirs according to Abraham. You see, there's always been this connection between the truth and Abraham. And if anything, that shows that there's a connection between Abraham, this Hebraic promise, and even today in the New Testament. The last thing Yahshua the apostles would have ever done would have been to establish a different faith apart from their Hebraic worship, apart from the foundation that, that they understood that went all the way back to the Old Testament. This can also be seen from Yahshua's ministry, even through the truth, or the uh, truth would eventually be brought to other nations. You know, we see in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, that it was first delivered to the lost sheep of Israel. It's an important point. I want to focus on this for just a moment. So Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 through 6 says this. These 12 Yahshua sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter you not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, what message did Yahshua here convey to the apostles? So he told them, don't go to those of other nations. Go first to the Jews. Go first to the Israelites, to the lost sheep of Israel. Which, by the way, tells me that they knew where the Israelites were, in part anyway. Josephus speaks about the Israelites being, I think, west of the Euphrates. So I think historically speaking, they had a pretty good idea where some of the Israelites were at this point. But he did not say here, go directly to Rome or to go directly to the Greeks, but again to the Jews, to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, this is an important point. Yahshua's message was first given to the actual seed of Abraham. Now, what Yahshua did on a few occasions reach out to other nations, as we saw through the Samaritan woman. He made an exception. But generally speaking, they only communicated to those of the Israelite seed. In fact, you know, most scholars consider Cornelius a first Gentile convert, which, as we know, wasn't converted until 10 years after Yahshua's ascension. So we have 10 years before the actual, before the first known Gentile convert. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because it shows that Yahshua's initial audience in the New Testament were Israelites. Here's a quote. I want to read this. This is a quote from the online Jewish encyclopedia. It says, for a long time, Christianity regarded itself as part of Judaism. Let me stop there for just a moment. I was, uh, oh, I think it's history of the book in plain, uh, plain language. Anyway, the author there, he speaks about Rome never persecuted the uh, Christians until they realized that they were not part of Judaism. See, 
the Jews were exempt from a lot of Roman laws. They were, you know, one thing is you had to worship the emperor. Well, we know the Jews were exempt. They would not do that. Matter of fact, according to this author, they were the only ones exempt. Everybody else had to worship the emperor. Every other religion, every other ethnicity had to worship the emperor. But the Jews, well, as soon as Rome figured out that Christianity was not Jewish, or the persecution came. But originally, we see here that Christianity was, was part of Judaism. And I tell people that, that all the time. Do you realize that in the beginning of the assembly, they were just considered another Jewish sect? You know, you had your Sadducees, you had your Pharisees, you, you had your Essenes, you had your Herodians, you had all these Jews, all these sects. I'm sure it was simply viewed as, okay, this sect follows this guy named Joshua. But it was viewed as a Jewish religion. Going on here, it says they had an, it centered Jerusalem. His first 15 bishops were circumcised Jews. Think about that. They observed the law and were rather unfriendly. Rather unfriendly. They did not like heathenism. Does that, does that sound a lot like us? So we see here that the first converts to Christianity, including, uh, quote Christianity anyway, including the uh, 15 bishops were circumcised Jews. We also see here that they obeyed the commandments. They obeyed the law. What an amazing and remarkable revelation here. Where we also see that they had a thing against heathenism. They didn't like heathenism. And heathenism basically is paganism. Paganism is anything foreign to scripture. Matter of fact, it wasn't really used as a derogatory term. Many people think of paganism as, as something derogatory. It really wasn't derogatory from a historical standpoint. All it was, it was used to, to distinguish uh, believers from non-believers. From Bible believers from non-Bible believers. That's how it was used. Now this is the same thing, again, as we see today. Yeah, the Puritans, you've probably heard about the Puritans when the Puritans came over. They had refused to worship Christmas. Matter of fact, in Boston, early on in that city, history says that they would fine, I think it was five, five shillings for those who showed a Christmas spirit in the city of Boston. So we see even in this nation there was a time when, when many religious uh, folks would refuse to embrace these things knowing that they had heathen or pagan roots. So there are some major, major differences between what our Savior established and, again, what we see in mainstream worship today. The assembly that the Messiah began was based, again, on Hebrew, on Jewish understandings, teachings, and not Roman teachings, not what we see today. You know, as we see in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, his ministry was around the Galilee region. There in Luke chapter 4, uh, 4, verse 14 through 15 says, And Yahshua returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. By the way, Galilee itself is not a real big area. You think Sea of Galilee, like the Mediterranean Sea, it's nothing like that. It's actually very small. It says there went out a fame of him. And you know, the Galilee, by the way, is kind of considered like the mid Midwest of this country not as maybe educated in some ways. Not, you, know, you don't have the big metropolitan areas. It was a smaller area than Galilee. Anyway, it says, his fame went out through all the region about him, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, I, you know I look for an opportunity to share photos for, from Israel. 
So I, I read this. I got to share a few photos, and then we'll move on. We'll talk about why this is important. But here's a few photos of Israel. Sort of gives you an, an understanding of what the Galilee looks like. So this is looking down uh, to the Sea of Galilee from the Golan Heights. Syria had this at one point. Israel was able to uh, to uh, conquer this, and, and they maintain control over it today. Matter of fact, as you go behind the Golan Heights, you can actually see tanks from, uh, I think it was the Six-Day War. Here's another photo. This is our 2014 tour group, and this is actually the same, same position. It's looking down toward the Sea of Galilee from the Golan Heights, and we see Steve and Debbie there in his stylish hat. And uh, in the center, we have Eli Shukran. He was our archaeologist and guide, great, great guy. Actually, I'm friends with him on Facebook, just a real down-to-earth man. He's been, he was with the Israeli Antiquities Authority for 25-plus years, and just an incredible tour guide. But uh, there's uh, Joel and, and Ryan as well. So here is a Jewish synagogue. This is at Magdol, first century synagogue. Matter of fact, when we got here, they, uh, the, the, uh, the, it, was, it wasn't open to the public yet. But Ellie, he got us in. But once we started filming, security wasn't real comfortable with that, so they asked us to put the cameras down. And anyway, Ellie made a few phone calls, and, and uh, we did not have to leave. But... Um, Really amazing site. Matter of fact, the Pope came just a few months after that, I think, to bless the seat of Moses they found here, that what they believe is to be the seat of Moses. So we beat the Pope to this uh, synagogue of Migdal. So this is inside the synagogue, and you can see here, it's not a real big area. This, these are fishing, fishing villages, not a real big area, but here's the synagogue, and you can see an uh, area where they would sit, and only men were allowed, by the way, in this area, and they would sit and they'd pray, and it was also kind of a community room, but I mean, see the center here, that object right there, they don't know what it is. Some speculate that it's the seat of Moses where they would actually sit and read from the uh, Torah. Well, here's another picture. This is at Capernaum. This is uh, Elder Don Esposito, and this is actually from our 2016 expedition. Here's uh, another one. This is also from Capernaum, and uh, you can see here the Golan Heights looking out to the Sea of Galilee, uh, Capernaum is right on the uh, Sea of Galilee. Again, this is Capernaum. You sort of see Ru- uh, Russ uh, King there in the distance. But this is a fourth, cent- really a, th- a fourth, but third or fourth, I think fourth century synagogue. Uh, there, it's actually one of the most, uh, one of the largest synagogues we find in the Holy Land. Just a remarkable, uh, remarkable architecture. One of the things you notice, just real quickly here, is it looks Roman, doesn't it? It looks Roman, or there's, there's a reason why is at this point they began using Roman architecture in their synagogues. Matter of fact, at Chorazin, we actually found a, a, uh, a block or a depiction of Medusa, believe it or not, of all things. So here, here's what's unique. At Megdal, it was a first century synagogue. No depictions really whatsoever. Nothing. No, no animals, nothing. You get to this, this uh, Capernaum, fourth century, 300 years later, and... They have, or of course, in the Roman style, and then you get to Chorazim, and you actually see a Medusa within the synagogue itself. Now, I couldn't help this. His elder, Dwayne Wilson, he came in 2016. Great guy, and, and I certainly enjoyed having him there. Now, this is a, in Matthew 23, verse 1, I think it is. It talks about the seat of Moses. Remember, seat of Moses. Or it was an actual seat. This is a replica, the actual seat of Moses, and it is in the Israeli Museum, which we had the opportunity to see. But they would sit here, and when they sat in this seat, they would read 
from Scripture. And that's why Joshua could say, you know, when they read from the seat of Moses, do what they say, because they're reading from the Word. This doesn't include their Talmudic junk. It includes your Scripture. Here's a few other photos. So we have Brother Red Thompson, right? Elder James King down in Cisco, and then Brother Ryan Manser. He's not here to enjoy this, but anyway, they all took portraits right there on the seat of Moses. I have one of me, but I left that off. I... Now, I had no group, group uh, photo of our last expedition, so this is in Jerusalem. So this is not around the Sea of Galilee, but this is in Jerusalem. It's uh, by the Three Arches uh, Hotel there in the old or near the old city, but um, let me see here. I wrote down all the names. So back row, left to right, we have uh, Russ King. Uh, let's see here, um, Ryan Mansager, Ed Thompson, Gary Mansager, Elder Dwayne Wilson, Elder Alan Mansager, Elder James King, and Elder Don Esposito. And then the front, left to right, we have our bus driver, which I feel bad, but I forgot his name, but super nice guy. We have, uh, let's see here. Loretta Thompson, Stacy Mansager, Wilson Mwangi. Wilson was my roommate, by the way. If you want a good roommate, but he's got married now, so I doubt if I'm going to have that opportunity. But he was a stellar roommate, quiet, considerate, just stellar roommate. But uh, we had a Wilson Mwangi, Linda Lowe, Sharon King, myself, and uh, Ellie Shukran, our guide and, again, archaeologist. So there's some photos from the uh, land of Israel. Now, getting back to what we find here, it's important to realize the audience Yahshua evangelized to in the early ministry. You know, for the most part, he would have encountered small Jewish families in the Galilee region. So his first disciples would have been who? Would have been Jews, right? That's where he was. He was not in Joppa or Jerusalem or some of these other places. No, he went to this small area of Galilee with these small fishing villages, and he would have attracted Jews. Now, another fact that many believers never consider is that Yahshua used the Old Testament as the foundation of his teaching. I want to read about this. This is in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. We see an example of this. It says there, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you. So notice, these are the words that Yahshua, that he's communicating. These are the words he's communicating. It says, well, I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled, which were written where? He says, in the law of of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So we see here that Yahshua used the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms to verify, to explain who he was. Now, as a side note, this is how the Jews separated the Old Testament at this time. They made a division between the law or Torah. Torah is the word they would probably use. The prophets of the Nevi'im and the Psalms of the Kedavim. As a side note, Kedavim also included the other writings, such as Proverbs, Job, Ruth, Chronicles, and Kings. Now, why is our Savior referring here to the Old Testament and not to the New You know, most people just assume in the church that he taught exclusively from the new, that he used the new to expound upon the word with. Where the fact is, there was no New Testament. There was absolutely no New Testament at this time. Uh, 
The actual canon of the New Testament would not exist for another 300 years. Now, that's not to say some of the letters and epistles and even the evangels weren't used. We know that Peter speaks about Paul's epistles. That's one reason I have such an issue with people who have an issue with Paul, because Paul speaks about Peter, or Peter speaks about Paul the other way. And Peter says that Paul is hard to understand. And Peter says, don't, don't, don't use his words out of context, because if you do this to your own destruction, he says. But anyway, Peter acknowledges Paul, and we know that he calls Paul's writings epistles, epistles, scripture. So they were viewed as scripture, but certainly, by and large, what was used at this point was the Old Testament. That's the book they were using. You know, what's amazing is that many scholars and theologians freely admit this. They understand this. They understand the history of the New Testament. They realize, they get the fact that these men were not referring to the New Testament. For example, let me share with you a few quotes here. This is from early Christian doctrines, and it says, for the first hundred years at least, that's a long time, isn't it? A hundred years. That's a long time. It says, for the first hundred years at least of his history, the church of scriptures in the precise sense of the word consisted exclusively, only of the Old Testament. So according to this author, for at least the first 100 years, the only book, the only scripture that they had was the Old Testament. Now think about it. This time frame would include the lives of the Messiah and also the lives of the apostles. You'll see they used the Old Testament as truth, as scripture. So during, this, during their ministry, we see here that they would, again, mostly rely upon the Old Testament, not the New. Again, showing this Hebraic connection. Or before moving on, I want to share two more quotes. First one is from another book entitled What Christians Believe by authors Johnson and Weber. It says, in Yahshua's attitude toward the Old Testament, one can glean a considerable range of information on his understanding of the nature and authority of the Bible. He either quotes or alludes to the Old Testament more than 150 times in the Synoptic Gospels alone. Now, the Synoptic are the evangels other than John, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are the Synoptic Gospels, as they call them. He thus exhibits a deep respect for the Bible. Now, we find one other reference here. This is from uh, Christianity Through the Centuries by Kearns, uh, 1954, the uh, when it was written in pages 44 through 46, it says Christianity may have developed in the political menu of Rome and may have had to face the intellectual environment created by the Greek mind, but its relationship to Judaism was much more intimate. And that's such an important point to realize, that it was closer to Judaism than it was to anything Greek or Roman. It says Judaism may be thought as the stock on which the rose of Christianity was to bloom. In other words, it came from Judaism. It came from Judaism. Judaism provided the heredity of Christianity and for a time even gave the infant religion shelter. The Jewish people still further prepared the way for the coming of Christianity by providing the infant church with the sacred book, the Old Testament. So we see the connection between the primitive or the early church and the Old Testament, that it provided, Judaism provided that book to them. Even a casual study of the New Testament will reveal Messiah's 
and the apostles, deeply in debtness to the Old Testament and their reverence for it as the word of Yahweh to man. So we find further evidence here that Yahshua not only referred to the Old Testament, but viewed it as scripture and viewed it nearly exclusively only as scripture. The common notion that the Old Testament was for the Jews and the New Testament's now for the church is, is nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. It's irrational. Because, again, there was no New Testament. There was no New Testament, not at this point. For them, the Old Testament was the final authority of Yahweh's word. This is, again, true of Yahshua and also true of the apostles. They would have never dreamed of putting a division between old and new. This was never in their sight, never in their thoughts to put this kind of division. Remember that the Messiah we serve was and continues to be Jewish or Hebraic. He was born a Jew, worshipped as a Jew, he died as a Jew, and he will return as a Jew. And again, when I say Jew, I'm referring to the faith given to Abraham, that Hebraic faith that was given to Abraham. The Bible confirms that both the Father and Son is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This includes their Hebraic faith. Yahweh established a Hebraic faith in the Old Testament. The Messiah taught a Hebraic faith in the New Testament and will teach and continue to teach a Hebraic faith when he returns to establish his Father's kingdom here on earth. He's not going to come back and teach a Sunday. He's not going to come back and impose Christmas or Easter. No, he's going to come back and he's going to reestablish Yahweh's Sabbath. He's going to reestablish the feast days. He's going to reestablish the word. Read Ezekiel, the latter part of Ezekiel. The, 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 the commandments we find will be established when he returns. Zechariah chapter 14, 16 says that all nations will observe the Feast of Tabernacles and those nations who refuse, including Egypt. It says, they will receive the plague of no rain. Also, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 23, says that all flesh will worship Yahweh on the new moons and the Sabbaths. So we see a connection there between the Hebraic Sabbath, the new moon, and the millennium. Again, they're not worshiping Sunday in the millennium. They're worshiping on the Sabbath in the millennium. And all flesh will do it, not just the Jews. You know, this concept of the, the uh, Sabbath is only for the Jews is just... Is, 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 is not correct. Now, part of the um, Jewish or Hebraic faith included obeying the commandments. We've talked a lot about this, but Yahshua confirmed this. Yahshua confirmed that his coming was not to change this. We see it in Matthew chapter 5. I know most of you are familiar with this. If not, get familiar with it because it's an important passage. Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. Remember that. It says, think not... That I am coming. You know, isn't this, isn't this amazing? Have you ever considered that? Have you ever really questioned and, and, and thought about the fact that Yahshua really began his, his ministry with this message? I don't think it was, was uh, beyond him what would happen. He says, Think now that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law to all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. By the way, I don't believe that means they're going to be there. It's just a euphemism to show that they're not going to, they're not going to make it because they're not obeying the word. The same shall 
be called, or the, it says, but whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So Yahshua says here that he came not to do what? Yahshua says here that he came not to destroy, but to fulfill the law. Now some have this notion that when Yahshua uses the word fulfill here, he means to destroy or to obliterate or to make null and void. That's how they understand this. So how does this fit with what he says? Does it make sense? Yahshua would say, I come not to destroy, but to destroy, or I come not to destroy, but to obliterate. That makes no sense at all, does it? It doesn't make sense because that's not what Yahshua was communicating. What Yahshua was saying here is that he came not to destroy, he came not to make null and void, he came not to obliterate the commandments, but he came to, to fulfill them, to, to show how to apply them and to do them. Matter of fact, in the account where Yahshua comes to John the Baptist, he tells him that I must fulfill all righteousness. The word fulfill is the same word we find here. And the implication there is he had to fulfill all righteousness through baptism, meaning he had to do it. Same thing here. The word is the same thing. It means to do, to do, to follow, to obey the word. He said here that as long as heaven and earth remained, that not one jot or one tittle would pass. Now, Last I look, heaven and earth were still here. We have heaven, we have earth. Now the jot refers to the yod. The yod is the smallest Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the tittle, or the tittle were the decorative points that the scribes would add to embellish the letters. Went on to say here that those who obey the commandments, these are the folks that will be called great, he says, in the kingdom of heaven. So again, does this sound like a, a man who was against the commandments, a man who had no regard for the law, a man who said, I come not to destroy, a man who says, not one jot, not one tittle, those who do will be blessed, where the answer should be obvious. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17, he confirmed there that to achieve eternal life, that we were to obey the commandments. Revelation, I'm going to say this real quickly, but I hope you know these Verses. Revelation 12, 17, 14, 12, 22, 14. 12, 17, 14, 12, 22, 14 of Revelation. All of those passages show that a believer will be a person who will be obeying the commandments. Three of the most critical passages, I believe, in the New Testament. I want to close now by showing some examples where Yahshua actually kept the Sabbath and the feast days, some of the feast days anyway. Okay, Mark chapter 1, verse 21, it says, and they went to Capernaum. We saw Capernaum, right? Right by the Sea of Galilee in the Galilee region. It says, and straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. So he was teaching in the synagogue. Same thing in Mark chapter 6, verse 2. It says, and when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. That's where he would go. And many hearing him were astonished. They were just amazed at this man's understanding and wisdom. So saying, from whence hath this man these things? How in the world does he understand this? They're asking. And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Luke chapter 4, verse 16 and 31, it says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Now, you know, it's funny because most of Nazareth did not believe him. And he said, a prophet has no honor in his own country. 
It says, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Are you seeing a pattern, by the way? Are you seeing a pattern of how he worshipped? He worshipped by, by going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up for to read and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And it came to pass also on another Sabbath, Luke chapter 6, verse 6, that he entered into the synagogue and taught, and there was a man whose hand was withered. So again, we see that he was on the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now Luke, we see here what his parents were doing and, and, and how he was raised as a kid. Luke chapter 2, verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, the Passover. Every year they did this, not just one year, every year, just like we should be coming to the feast every year. That's what Yahshua's parents were doing. Another example here, Matthew chapter 26, 18 through 19 says, And he said, Go into the city to such a man and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand, and I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Yahshua had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Some say that Yahshua never ate the Passover. Yahshua says, Go get a place so that I can eat the Passover. So we see here the Passover. Now, one more scripture here, John chapter 7, verse 2, verse, and verse 37. It says, now the Jews, and by the way, the reason it's a Jews feast, some people make a big deal about this, and they say, oh, there it is. There's evidence that these days are Jewish. No, the only ones keeping these days were Jews, so they were labeled Jews or Jewish. But they're not Jewish. We know that Yahweh says these are my days in, in Leviticus 23, verse 2. They're not Jewish. These are his days. The reality is the only ones keeping them were the Jews, so they were called Jews. Jews, Feast of Tabernacles, was at hand. Now, verse 37 says, In the last day, so the last day of the feast, that great day of the feast, Yahshua stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. You know, from these passages, we see that Yahshua obeyed the Sabbath. He obeyed the Passover. He obeyed Tabernacles. We know that he obeyed all the feast days and as we, uh, as we can find with the apostles. In Luke chapter 2, verse 41, we see that his parents would go to Passover every single year. Again, as we should. We should be skipping years. Yahweh says, especially during tabernacles, Yahweh says to come and to stay in Sukkot, to stay in a temporary dwelling, to, to, not, to leave your home, your, your, uh, your place of residence, and to worship me with others of like faith. That's what we should be doing. That's what Yahshua did. That's what his parents did before him. That's what we should do. You know, this is also true. The apostles did the same thing, right? We know that the apostles, there's many examples of them observing the Sabbath and feast days. Yes, ironic. Where do you think we find most examples of the Sabbath with the apostles? It's Paul. You know, the supposed champion of Christianity, the one that supposedly transformed religion as we know it today, he is the one that was keeping the Sabbath. Really, scripture shows I mean, all of them were doing it, but scripture says Paul, out of everybody, he was the one doing it. Again, all of them were doing it, but we see more examples from Paul, that he would go to the synagogue and preach. And we see examples of Paul, for instance, in, in um, Acts 20, verse 16, where it says that, by all means, I must be at Jerusalem for Pentecost. You see, this man understood the importance of these days. And believe me, they understood who the Messiah was and what he taught throughout his ministry. And it's incumbent upon us as believers to understand the same. They understood that he was born from the line of Judah. They also understood that he was not Roman or Greek. They understood 
that he was given a Jewish name that meant Yahweh's salvation. They understood that he believed in obeying the commandments, like the Sabbath and the feast days. And they also understood that he died and was resurrected as a Jew who maintained his Jewish or Hebraic faith. This did not change. So as believers in the Messiah today, let us not be deceived. Let us not be led astray. Let us understand who the Messiah is, who our Savior is, what he believed, what he taught, what he upheld during his ministry and during his life. You know, this is our salvation. Yahshua is the only way. And for that reason, it is so important that we understand who he was and what he did throughout his ministry. So I pray that this message has been a blessing to you. And you know what? If you're new to this ministry, I would, I would encourage you to prove it out. A lot of ministers, they don't like questions. I can't tell you how many people call the ministry and they say, I tried to go to my minister, but he refused to answer my... We like questions. And we encourage you to study it up. Because, you know, when you have the truth, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of. So we would challenge you to do that. We would encourage you to do that. And uh, may Yahweh bless you and be with you.